Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, imagine, I don't know if you've ever seen this in movies, every once in a while they'll, they'll create a visual like this, where you're standing in this giant room and there are a thousand doors, just like doors on top of doors, you know? And behind every door is, is, is something else, and you don't know which one to go through. And I, I think that, um, you know, with the, the data explosion, the information explosion that's coming our way, there's, there's so many doors. There's so many doors that we can go through, so many different ideas. And certainly in Torah, there's so many different ideas, and it's very hard to prioritize, well, which one? Which, which one should I go through first? Which one is going to get me the, the furthest distance? And so I just want to talk about a couple of ideas that I think that we, we should prioritize, because these things will actually get us very, very, very far. And that's not to say that another idea isn't a good idea and that another idea isn't also worthy. But I want to try to give you some guidance in terms of like what to emphasize in your own life because these are the things that we really need to make progress in. So, so I want to read from, uh, from this great new book that, that Z.V. Ritchie just put out. It's, it's called The Book of Love and Prayer. And uh, I highly recommend it. It's uh, like a, like, almost like an encyclopedia of, of Reb Shlomo Karlbach's Torahs. And it's uh, available for $12.50 on Amazon. So you can look it up and you can buy 10 and give them out. I, I, I've given out 14 so far. So we'll see, we'll see if I can give out some more. But, but anyway, um, it's, uh, it's, it's the idea of happiness. You know, we, we have a community here in Los Angeles. We call it the, the Happy Minion. Um, Happiness is, is more than just being in a good mood. That's, that's, the, uh, that's kind of like the, just the, the, the beginning of this idea. Um, we think that happiness means that you're walking around with a smile on your face. If you can do that, that's great, but, but that's not really the essence of what happiness is or simcha um, when, when we're talking about it in the Torah context. Happiness is really... Um, something that causes one's mind to expand. And when one's mind expands, you can take in the big picture. And then once you have the big picture, the small things don't bother you because you see the giantness of everything. See, the problem is is that stress and tension and everything like that cause us to focus in on our problems because we really want to solve them. But, but, But something happens at the same time when you focus in on your problems, you can get what's called tunnel vision. And then when you have tunnel vision, you don't see everything else that's out there. And then you think that you are your problems and your problems are you. And then that often stops you from solving your problems. So in other words, it's, it's all the Yetzirah. It's all the, the negative inclination. These are all the, the tricks that plays on us. In other words, you're coming from a good place. You want to really focus in on... On, on what the problem is, but when you focus in, a lot of times you get trapped by the problem itself. So, so how can you avoid that problem? So you have to have an expansive vision of everything, including your problem. Then you can 
focus in on your problem, but you can see everything else at the same time, right? And, 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 and yet still have focus, all right? That's, that's the ideal state. Happiness allows you to do this. Happiness allows you to do this. So, so how, do you, how do you be happy, right? So I'm going to just read you something. This is on page 11, again from the Book of Love and Prayer. This is uh, from Reb Shlomo. He's, it's a bit of a transcript. He, he's learning from Rebbe Nachman of Breslov here. Okay? He says, why are we sad? We are sad because we think that things are wrong. Why do we think that things are wrong? Because we have the feeling that we are running the world. Since things are not the way I think they should be, that means they are wrong. But let's face it. I'm not the master of the world. If it's clear to me that there's one God who takes care of everything... If it's clear to me that one God is taking care of the most lonely leaf driven by the wind, then what am I complaining about? If I think the world is terrible, then I think that God is not doing such a good job. I think God doesn't do anything for the world. I'm not doing anything for the world. Nobody is doing anything for the world. It has to be clear to me not only that there is one God, but that God is doing so much for the world. I'm doing so much for the world. Every human being is making the world more beautiful. The first level is that I believe in God so much that I know that everything is good. Then there's a higher level that I really don't care. I do care, yet I don't. Because if there's one God, what else do I need? All right, I'm going to read a little bit more. Our holy rabbis teach that a person who is sad is dead. If you commit suicide, you do it only once. But if you're sad, you commit suicide every second. Every falling down is only because you didn't trust in God enough, because you didn't believe in God enough. Since you didn't trust and you didn't believe, you were sad. And so you didn't have the strength to do anything. Now listen to this. A happy person can also be sad sometimes. That's okay. But the most important thing is that while you're sad, don't stop being happy. (laughs) <laughs> so so this is that's a that's that's a lot to absorb that's a, that's a lot to absorb but the idea is getting back to this imagery of of so many doors of so many doors the the idea is is that a person has to understand that god is running the world and that god is doing a good job running the world and that god is good you see, this is the, this is the problem that, that I think if you want to just sort of like just drill down that so many people have. They'll believe in a God. They'll believe in an all-powerful God. But in their mind, they don't necessarily know in their own hearts that that all-powerful God is good and means good for them and means good for the world. You see, that, 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 it makes, that makes all the difference in the world. That's the biggest game changer in the entire world. Because you, if you believe in a God that's all-powerful, right, but you don't actively, and I'm saying, I'm stressing that, if you don't actively believe that that God who's running the world is good and means good for you at every single moment, then essentially what you believe in is an all-powerful dictator. <laughs> It's not Judaism. Like, 
do, do, you under, do, do you understand how that one point, that one point makes all the difference in the entire world? Only if you believe that the one who's all-powerful, who's guiding everything, means good and means good for you at every single moment, can you be in a place where you can actually achieve happiness? Because then you say to yourself, you know something? I wanted it this way. God made it that way. But you know what? God, who knows so much more than me, thank God that you're there because I would have done it this way. So you did it that way. I thought I wanted this thing. <laughs> but you know better, God. And now I can relax because I know that the one who decreed whatever that result was, even though it wasn't to my liking, has my good in mind, is actively running the world, isn't asleep at the world, and that's why that didn't happen. No, 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 he's actively running the world. He meant for that other outcome to happen. Then I can celebrate because I know that I'm in the hands of the one who loves me the most. You know, I, I haven't sung it to you in a while. But I once wrote a song, and, and it goes like this. I don't know where I'm going, I don't know where I'm going, I don't know where I'm going, but the driver is good. <laughs> That's the song. <laughs> if, you, if you know that the driver is good then you can sit back on the bus and relax, right? And you say, but wait a second, we just drove by that place that I really wanted to go to. But then you say, but wait a second, the driver is good. Okay, so we're going to a better place. But you, but you have to believe that. But you have to believe that. Yeah, You have to know that. Right? So that means that you have to be a little bit tied less a little bit to thinking that if it's not going the way I want, then it's then the world is being guided in a wrong place. Right? Say because that's getting back to what I read to you before, right? Let me just reread that one section. Why are we sad? We're sad because we things are because we think things are wrong. Why do we think things are wrong? Because we have the feeling that we are running the world. Since things are not the way I want, think they should be, that means they are wrong. You understand? Do, do, do you hear the... There's, there's a lot of very impactful wisdom right there. It's being delivered in a very simple way. But these are transformative ideas. This, if, you, if, you, if you can allow yourself to accept the goodness of God and that he's actively running the world then you know that the one who knows better, is act, who, who has your best interests in mind, is in control. And that nothing can stop him. So you're like, wow, like the most powerful being in the world is running my life for the good? What am I worried about? Right? So, so this, is, this is the door that will lead you the farthest. This is the door that will lead you the farthest. Okay. Now I want to... I want to just tell you something. Um, we have someone in, in our community here who was actually honored uh, in Congress at the, at the last State of the Union address, 
right? So before the whole nation. He's a Holocaust survivor. He's in his 90s. Strong man. He's, you know, he was here just last Friday night. He's probably about six foot tall and like, it looks like he's made out of iron, really. He's really an impressive, amazing man. Was in the depths of Auschwitz. And he was called out in, in Congress at the State of the Union, a national television, because um, he was, uh, his, his area was, 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 was uh, liberated by American soldiers. Okay? So, so we have the privilege of knowing him. And uh, at, the, at the end of the service Friday night, someone handed him, I mean, it was really a sight to see. Someone handed him a picture of the sort of the local newspaper that had Soleimani, who was the head of the uh, Iranian, um, you know, uh, uh, forces army, you know, who was just who was just t- who was just taken out, and he was uh, his face was on the his face was on the cover, and and he was dancing, holding up this magazine with the guy's face on it. So you have to understand, someone rescued, and I, I don't want to go into details because they're painful, but someone rescued from the depths of Auschwitz, right? Dancing, holding this picture of someone who's, you know, sworn to destroy Israel, who's just been eliminated. That was something to see. That was really something to see. So, so let me ask you a question. How was he able to do that? What is he even doing in shul after his experiences in Auschwitz? Much less dancing, right? Like, how does a person get to a place of forgiveness? So, so this is a big question and this is a big door. How do you and this will also take you very far. How, how do you forgive? And, and I want to talk about it within the context of Yosef. Joseph and his brothers. Because there's a, there's a last chapter to the story of Joseph and his brothers. And it's not discussed that often. Mostly people like um, just sort of like end the conversation when... Joseph reveals himself that he was really the one behind everything like that. This sort of Egyptian taskmaster who's making their life a living hell. Really, that's their brother. And he was really trying just to get them to, you know, fix the fact that they had sold him earlier, you know, and and, and they succeed in doing that. And then he reveals who he is. And then they all come together. Right. And usually that's when people stop discussing the story. So. So what I'm telling you is there's another chapter to the story, and it's very, very sad. For me, it's very, very sad, okay? And it, it has everything to do with forgiveness. So let's, let, me, let, me, let me tell you where it is in case you want to look at it. It's, in, uh, it's at the end of Brachis, at the end of Genesis. It's chapter 50, verse 15, if you want to look it up. Um, it's kind of buried at the, at the very end and in sort of like an unexpected little place. So you won't come across it naturally. And what happens is, is that after Yaakov Avinu, right, Jacob, leaves the world, the brothers are concerned, maybe Joseph really 
does want to take revenge on us. And he was just waiting for our father to die, right? So that, you know, because it doesn't look so nice to do it in front of their father, who was, you know, like basically the greatest human that ever lived, right? So let's just wait till he leaves the picture, and then Joseph's going to do his thing. So the brothers are scared. And the brothers essentially make up a message from their father saying, you know something? Um, the brothers say to Joseph, like, you know, you know, your father gave, gave orders before his death saying that, Joseph, please forgive your brothers, right? Don't, don't, you know, and, 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 and here's the heartbreaking part of it, okay? Because this is coming 17 years later after he forgave them. Now, now do you understand what that means? That means that on some level, they never fully received the fact that they were forgiven. Or perhaps you could say on another level that they never forgave themselves. And because perhaps they never forgave themselves, they never truly believed that Joseph forgave them. Or maybe you can just say more simply, they actually didn't think Joseph forgave them. Because maybe they thought, how could anyone forgive such a thing? It's unforgivable. So he can't have forgiven us because it's unforgivable. However you want to, you know, the, the, the heart is a very complicated place. There, there are many ways to explain why they felt as though they needed to make up this message from their father. So, so Yosef reassures them. Joseph reassures them that they are in fact, that he does in fact forgive them, that he, that he forgave them. Okay? And that his going down into Egypt, he, he says something like unbelievable, something really divine. He says, it was God was just orchestrating events and essentially you were pawns in this process because I really needed to go to Egypt in order to stop this famine and feed the entire world and, 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 and save all of us, save our family, in addition to all the other people, right? Which he did do. And, and that's how he saw it. He reframed, you know, talk about psychological terms. He reframed the entire event and saw it in this expansive way, right? Again, that's, that's the greatness of simcha. That's the greatness of, of joy, of happiness, is that it expands your mind and you're able to see the entire picture. And you can see how God is actually interacting with us if, if, if you're able to do that, Okay. Now, what I want to say is, and this is me talking right now, what I want to say is the following. I'm learning a very practical lesson from this, which is, if you are going to forgive someone, make sure the person who you're forgiving knows that they're forgiving, that they're forgiven. If you are going to forgive someone, make sure the one who you are forgiving knows that they are forgiven. Do you understand? Because the brothers didn't fully understand that they were forgiven, obviously, right? So, so let me tell you what I think the problem is, why this happens all the time, and why I'm, I'm trying to emphasize this point for all of our lives, okay? 
because forgiveness is a very internal process. Okay, so just I'm just going to kind of act out the process of forgiveness right now, and I say, oh, I was so hurt, you, you hurt me so badly, but now I'm going to try to overcome this very negative feeling, and I'm, yes, I'm reaching this level where I forgive you. Right? That's usually done when a person is on their own, and it's a tremendous struggle, but it was just an internal process. You know what I mean? Usually you go, okay, I forgave them, but what about that point where you actually tell the other person? <laughs> or you reassure the other person? Or you make it known? Some, you see, let me tell you something about tshuva. Tshuva, of course, is horribly translated as repentance. Like, you know, it's, it's a horrible translation. As I like to say, we fast once a year over translations like this, okay? This past week, really, you know? Um... It means return. That's actually what the word means. It means return. So it, it, you're returning to God. And, and, and as Rabbi Soloveitchik says so clearly and wonderfully, that, that real tshuva, you see, everything is about relationships. And tshuva means that you've restored the relationship. You see, someone can do something um, negative and you can forgive them. But that doesn't mean that the relationship is back to the way it was before. Real tshuva, real tshuva, real return means that the relationship is restored. Okay? Now, sometimes that, that takes a while because we're human beings. And when we get hurt, we can't just, we're not robots. We can't just snap our fingers and then everything is back to normal, right? And we can't expect that of ourselves. You know, one of the big lessons that I had to learn when I got married was that, um, you know, I would say do something insensitive, and then I would apologize to my wife, and then she would accept my apology, and then, but then things weren't back to normal, were not back to normal. And, And I would be, like, frustrated, aggravated, like... And, and, and over time, I realized, and she explained to me, she needs time to heal from whatever that insensitivity was. And so, 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 so there's a, an, or, an organic process to forgiveness. And, and we, have to, we have to understand that. But ideally, part of that forgiveness includes telling the other person that the that the relationship is back is back on track right and and again that can happen in stages that doesn't have to happen in the snap of a finger right but if the other person can at least be reassured then that's when the fullness of the forgiveness really takes place okay and and like I say, it's a, it, it's, it's a process. Now, I want to tell you something because there's, there's something very deep that I learned that, 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 that taps into these types of things. Right now, we're finishing the book of Breshis, the book of Genesis, the first of the five books of the Torah. We just finished it this, this past Shabbos. 
And now, you know, like they say, whatever's going on in the Torah is going on in the world. So now we're starting a new book of the Torah and it's a new energy. Everyone should know that. It's like we're entering into like a different, a different kind of, kind of a different neighborhood, so to speak, different time, space, energy, neighborhood. Hopefully that doesn't sound too kooky, but you, you under, hopefully you understand what I'm saying. It's like, so, you know, just like in a workout, you know, you say, okay, let's like begin by stretching and things like that. And now we're going to pick up the pace and, and we're going to, we're going to move, you know, you know, from the cardio to maybe arms or legs or something like that. So, so there is an aspect of that to the way God creates time and space in the year because it's all being done to sort of like, you know, really elevate our souls and rectify our souls and things like that. So, so now we're entering into that next stage of the workout and it gets a little bit more intense now. And the idea is that now we're really in a period of the year that we're re- beginning a period of the year called Shovavim, which is actually the, um, an acrostic. That word Shovavim is an acrostic of the first letters of the next, I don't know, eight or so Parshas. Spell that word. And that word is in the prophets, and basically it's talking about essentially getting your act together, you know, in modern day terms. Now, what's interesting is this week's Parsha, the last Parsha of the last section of Breshis, of, of Genesis, is hinting at this new period that's about to come. How is it hinting? Where's the hint? So listen to this. In the beginning um, of the Parsha, it says that, okay, we know that Yaakov, Jacob, lived 147 years. So the beginning of the Parsha says that he spent his last 17 years, which were good. By the way, 17 is the gematria of the word tov, which means good. His last 17 years were his best years. He spent those in Egypt. That means that he spent the first 130 years, which were, we don't want to say bad, but were very, very hard, right? Those 130 years were spent outside of Egypt. So in other words, the Torah itself is presenting a model for us of the 130 hard years, right? Now, where else do you see 130 hard years in the Torah? So, you know, it's always amazing whenever you can trace anything back to the Garden of Eden, right? Back to Adam Arishon, because you know you're getting really to the root, to the essence of something on a spiritual level. So it says that after Adam and Eve, after Adam and Chava were exiled from the Garden of Eden, Adam separated from his wife. And he separated from her, you ready? For 130 years. Isn't that interesting? It's very, very, very interesting. Okay? At the end of that period, they get back together. And remember, they had Cain and Abel, and we know how that worked out, right? And that was part of the separation because Adam was like, okay, what is going wrong? And they get back together and they have Shes, who in English we say Seth, S-E-T-H, who becomes the progenitor of the Jewish people, by the way. Okay? So this 130-year period is a time of intense work that Adam is doing on himself. And by the way, during that period, the Gemara talks about it, during that period, falls down a lot. 
like isn't like really has a very very hard time during that period of time. Now listen to this. My question is, how could it be? Right, because we're getting back to like the 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 earliest kind of stages of like creation now. And this is me talking. How could it be that Adam, in 130 years, right, couldn't have fixed everything? Right? Isn't that a reasonable question? How is it that he didn't fix everything? And get, get, get back into the Garden of Eden, basically. Right? Just like, like just kind of gotten history back on course. So I want to give you my answer. All right? Because we know he was working on himself, which means we know that he was doing tshuva. We know that he was. So here's my answer. You ready? It's kind of a radical answer. I want to say that he wasn't able to fix everything because he didn't, because he didn't have a Rebbe. Okay? What do I mean by that? You know, everybody needs a Rebbe. As, as, as Rib Shlomo put it one time, what's the difference between a rabbi and a Rebbe? You also need a rabbi, by the way. A rabbi tells you something you didn't know before. A rebbe connects you to the deepest part within yourself. Okay? But what? A rebbe can also tell you more. A rebbe can also tell you something you didn't know before. You see, I learned that Adam was doing tshuva during those 130 years, for sure. But he was doing tshuva mi'ira, which means tshuva from a standpoint of awe or fear. Not tshuva me'ava. Tshuva me'ava, from a return to God from a standpoint of love, is something that's able to take all of your past mistakes and turn them into merits. Tshuva me'ira, tshuva that's just done out of fear, takes your past mistakes and neutralizes them. Return from love takes your past mistakes and turns them into merits, turns them into mitzvahs. See, that's why it says in the Gomorrah that where a, a Baal Tshuva stands, someone who's sort of returned to God, right? That's someone who's make, made mistakes and fixed them up. Where that person stands, it's so high that a perfect tzaddik Someone who never made a mistake can't reach the place of someone who made a mistake and has fixed the mistakes. It's an amazing, that's an amazing spiritual truth. I heard Rabbi Meir Fun put it this way. Same idea, different, different imagery. That, you know, if you have like a um, ceramic, like a ceramic vase, something like that, you know, and you break it, falls on the ground into so many pieces. Well, you can glue it back together, but it never looks as good as it did before it broke. But he says that in the eyes of heaven, if you have something that breaks and you put it back together, it looks even better than it did before it broke. 
Can you imagine? That's, that's, that's what we're talking about. But that's tshuva me'ava. That's tshuva from love. And, and tshuva from love is something that someone has to be in an active relationship with. They can't be in a passive relationship. Like, like it's the difference between saying, okay, I used to do this, but now I don't do that. And I used to not do this, and now I do do that, right? That's one level. Here's another way of saying, I used to do this, <laughs> but now I don't do it. <laughs> I used to not do that, but now I do it. <laughs> That's the difference between tshuva me'ira and tshuva me'ava. One is, there's a life force within you that's driving the relationship. The other is, you're just sort of like, you know, you're at the DMV and someone just handed you another booklet of things you have to figure out. I mean, it's a level, believe me, it's a level. But it's not what we're talking about. It's not what we're talking about. If you want to go back to that piece of imagery that we talked about with all the doors, right? Can you imagine five stories of just doors in this cavern? Where am I going to walk through? Which door is going to lead me to the furthest, furthest place and not just to another dead end or another set of doors? This active love-based relationship can get you to that place. But it all goes back to what I was saying in the beginning of the talk. If you don't know that God is good, if you just believe in God, an all-powerful God, and think that you're done with your believing job, you might be believing in an all-powerful dictator. (laughs) Which is not going to get you very far. I mean, it'll, again, it's better than nothing, maybe, maybe. But it's not what we're talking about. When you, when you hear the word Torah, when you hear the word Judaism, it's not what we're talking about. So these are like little things, but these little things are complete game changers, complete life changers. And you literally don't even understand what this discipline is unless you understand these points. It changes everything. So, how was Yosef able to forgive his brothers? Okay, maybe for whatever reason they didn't fully receive it. That may have been their issue. Maybe, again, maybe it's because they didn't forgive themselves. Maybe it wasn't Yosef's issue at all. You know what I mean? But whatever it is, how was he able to see it? Because he understood that God is good. That even as his brothers are selling him into slavery, into Egypt, right? And then he's spending, I don't know, 10 years or more in a prison there, right? The lowest place in the lowest land. He never let go of God's goodness. So, so that's how you can do it. You know, getting back to the 
the survivor that I, I, I told you about in the beginning of the talk, you know, uh, Viktor Frankl, the famed uh, psychologist who, who also was in the, the concentration camps, said that, the, the, that in, in his famous book, Man's Search for Meaning, that those people who were able to hold on to their quest for meaning, right? That, that these are the people who did, did best and that, and that we have something deep inside of us. Every person has something deep inside of themselves, which is this need for meaning. And, um, you know, <coughs> everything wants to distract you from that. It's like, like, I'm telling you that, that the technology of entertainment, right, is, is, is going to advance a whole nother quantum step where you, in the not-too-distant future, you know how you sit in a movie theater and you look at a screen and there's the, there's the movie taking place? What would it be like to be, in, to be there, to have the movie actually take place around you? I'm not talking about in screens around you. I'm talking about that the characters are like in holographic form or whatever the, whatever the technology will end up being but they're actually acting out the scene right in front of you. The battle is actually going on right in front of you. You know, the, the battle against the, the dragon is you're standing there. You've got a, you're standing there as he's battling the dragon, right? It's coming, right? And it, it's, it's, it's going to advance even beyond that, where, where VR, right, virtual reality, is so intense that it's going to become less and less clear what actually is real and what's not real. And then can you imagine what's going to happen to our notion of history, that these events happened? You're going to be, have so many alternate histories in front of you that when people say, no, 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 this thing happened, <laughs> it's going to be marginalized to the point where it's almost going to take an act of belief that, that any of these things that are uncontested as part of our history happened. You know, I'll tell you something just about my own personal spiritual journey. Um, this, this thought played a big role um, for me. I, I was amazed that... Uh, I was amazed that in the lifetime of survivors of the Holocaust, right, that there were Holocaust deniers. Like, how could it be? You had, like, like now a lot of them are very elderly, and, and there aren't as many as there were when I was growing up, but, but 25 years, 30 years after the Holocaust, we had thousands of people who went through it with tattoos on their arms, Right? You have the, the death camps there with the ovens. Like, they're all there. You have the, the people from different countries who, who the soldiers who rescued them, all alive. Documentaries, books, everything. Documents from the governments who ran the death camps. And people saying, no, 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 it never happened. How could that be? 
how could that be? And then I thought to myself, if they're denying that event in the, in the immediate aftermath of the event, what about Mount Sinai? Right? Mount Sinai also happened. But there are certain events that happen in human history which are so like short-circuit the brain that it's just easier to just say it didn't happen or it couldn't have happened or something happened but not the way you're describing it. Right? Because you, you've got to... Like, like Rip Shlomo used to say all the time, why are you making God so small? Why are you making God so small? Right? Because the, the, the mind is desperate to latch on to something concrete. And, and, and it will even alter the, the idea just so that it can hang on to something. I thought to myself, if Mount Sinai happened, then probably what would it look like today? I mean, today meaning many years after the initial event. What would it look like? And I thought to myself, well, probably there would be a small percentage of the people saying, no, it's exactly as, as it's written. And then a much larger percentage of the people saying, no, it's something happened, but not exactly like that. And I thought, well, what do we have today? That's exactly what we have today. It kind of makes sense, right? But, but now things are accelerating. It, yeah, I mean, you see, just to say one more thing about Mount Sinai. The thing is, is that all of us are the children of 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 the children who are there. And, and we have that testimony that's been handed down. And what's so interesting, if you want to talk about just the way truth is communicated over generations, especially in an age of technology, what's so interesting is when, 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 when I was growing up, if you were in, say, a, there was like a court case, right? Like, you know, Perry Mason is before my time, but that's, that was sort of like the, the big first legal drama in television, right? So, and, and Perry Mason episodes, not that I ever watched any of them, but they were famous for someone running into the courtroom at the last second and with a piece of evidence. And then that turns the case, right? That's kind of just how they would write these things. And the, the, the best, most irrefutable piece of evidence that, that someone could run into the courtroom with at the last second to save the day was a photograph Right? If you had a photograph of like this guy is pointing a gun or whatever it is, then hands down, you know, that guy's guilty, that guy's in- innocent, and everything's solved. But today you can forge photographs so easy. Not only can you forge photographs, but they've got this stuff now called deep fake um, technology where you can actually put someone's face into another scene. Like it's another person doing it, but you can put someone else's face into the scene and now you have videotape, 
right? You have actually videotape of someone doing something that they never did. So, so what's so um, what's so ironic is that technology has gotten so advanced that it's actually become untrustworthy in certain ways. Isn't that's ironic? It should be. It should. It should be the opposite. It's become so advanced that now it's absolutely irrefutable. But it's kind of eaten its own tail. So, so what then becomes the greatest evidence if it's not that? The testimony of someone who loves you, who you love, who you can trust, who received it from someone who loves them, who they love, who they can trust. And in, in Torah, we, we have a word for that, the Masorah, which means the handing down from the generations, right? What's, what's kind of funny is, I, I, I don't know the exact math here, so I'm, I'm making up this number, but you'll get the idea of what I'm saying, is the number of Passover seders that have taken place since we've left Egypt, right? And, and someone did this calculation based on, like, if you have, say, like a grandparent and then a grandchild. So a very old grandparent and a very young grandchild. So in other words, they're trying to make the maximum, the maximum time. It's something really surprising. Something like 25 satyrs between us and leaving Egypt. Again, don't, 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 don't take that number to the bank. But it's not 500. It's not 3,000. It's not... It's a surprisingly small number of satyrs, is what I'm trying to say. Um, of course, the satyr recounts orally, in, in the way that I'm talking about, the, the events of leaving Egypt and Mount Sinai and things like this. Okay, so I want to go deeper now. I want to get, I want to get back to this idea of Adam... Um, wanting to fix, wanting to return back into the Garden of Eden. And I want to tell you something from Reb Tzadik Akon. This is from Tekanis HaShavin. And, and it's a very, very deep idea. Very, very deep idea. Okay? We know that after, if you look in the Torah, it says that after Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve were, were exiled from the Garden of Eden, there were these two, bless you, there were these two fiery angels called Kruvim with like flashing swords that were posted at the gates of the Garden of Eden, making sure that Adam and Eve couldn't get back in. What, what was the fear? The fear was that they were going to go back into the Garden of Eden, eat from the tree of life, live forever, and and then never really be able to fix what they had done wrong. In other words, God wasn't being, dis- wasn't being spiteful, like, oh, now you'll never eat from the tree of life. No, no, no. That, that, that's always the plan, and it's still the plan, by the way. By the way, I, I, I heard something very wonderful, which is that we were always supposed to eat from the tree of knowledge. We just had to eat from the tree of life first. See, but we ate from the tree of knowledge first. And then, that, anyway, it's a, it, it, everything got short-circuited in, t- in terms of the way that we perceive the world because we didn't have the context of really understanding life to absorb our knowledge and our own knowledge just 
became something that limited our vision, ironically, as opposed to expanded it, okay? So now death comes into the world and, and we still get to that, 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 that place of expansion, but, but, but we have to kind of do the work in this world in order to get to that place. So if we live forever, then we're never able to actually rectify what we did wrong. So God, for our own good, posts these, these fiery angels stopping us from getting to the tree of life because otherwise we're not going to really be able to repair what we need to repair. Anyway, Reb Sadaka Kohen gives a fascinating, amazing piece of information of where those fiery angels came from. Okay, you ready for this? Now, he doesn't say what I'm about to tell you, but I think he's assuming this knowledge. So let me, let me say it over. Okay. We have something in Perkei Avos, which says that when someone does a mitzvah, they create a positive angel. And that positive angel will be an advocate, someone who will you know, support them, basically. And on the other side, if someone does something negative, something they shouldn't do, they create also like an angel, but, but it's kind of one that is an accuser, right? Now, I, I love to say the following over because that sounds very magical and mystical and whatever, like, really, you're creating angels? Angels, what are you talking about? So let me just explain it in sort of modern language, and, and I think you'll see that it actually makes a lot of sense. So the example that I always love to give is that if you hug someone that you have tremendous affection for, you can actually feel energy coming out of yourself. You, you can feel it, you know? So, so that's a life force that's coming out. You understand? So, so when you do something good, you are emitting energy. You are emitting a life force. And what we're saying is that that life force has an integrity to it, has a has a shape to it, right? And that's what we're calling an angel. And the, the interesting piece of information is that that energy that you emit from yourself endures and has on some level some consciousness to it, right? Like at least it has a positive stamp on it, right? And you can also understand that if you kind of give someone like a very casual hug, well, maybe something a little comes out of you, but not much. You give someone like, oh, I'm so happy to see you, I need, ah! Then there's a lot coming out of you. So that's what they say, that if you do a mitzvah, right, with a lot of energy, you make a big angel. If you kind of just mumble a blessing before you eat an apple, like you create an angel, but it's probably got a terrible limp and, you know, it's a little hunchbacked, right? <laughs> so it's like, that's, but that's in, to the effort goes the reward, right? It, 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 it correlates with what, what you put into the world, okay? Now, now on the other side too, let's think about the, the other version of this. If you get very angry and you start yelling and screaming and your face gets all red and everything like that, for sure there's energy leaving you. For sure there is. There's not, you don't have to stretch your brain to, to know that's the case. And so that's creating something that's an accuser. And that's kind of living out there. Okay? 
Now you say, well, what am I going to do with all those like negative forces that I put out into the world? Like, oh my God, like I'm in trouble. Like, but the great news is you can you can do one of two things with all with all that negative energy. You ready? You can do tshuva from the standpoint of awe, in which case it all gets neutralized. Or you can do, you can return from a place of love and all those negative forces flip over into advocates. Can you imagine? Like you can do a complete energy, like re- refurbishment, I don't know what, you know, like, you know, whatever, you know, redeck, you can, you can redecorate your, <laughs> your, your, your existence, essentially. And, and the secret is love. The secret is love. Okay. Now we're ready for Reb Tzadik's thought. He says that when we ate from the tree of knowledge, when we were told not to, we created those two fiery angels blocking our way back into the garden. <coughs> that Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, created those two angels stopping us from getting back in. Because of the energy <coughs> that they put into the world, they created those angels. And because they did this negative thing, they created this blockage. Isn't that fascinating? I, I find that absolutely fascinating. So, so we see there on a very, very deep level that a lot of times the, the barriers that we're creating are just self-imposed. And that if we really clarify our goals... And we really figure out, like, what am I doing in this world? What am I doing with this life? Why was I created? What do I want? If we can get clarity and then say, well, is that the life that I've been living? What about all the other stuff that I was doing? And then you go back and you fix that stuff. What happens is, is that barriers that were previously in front of you get removed. And then we can go farther and farther and farther and farther. So, so let me just finish from the place that I started, okay? Imagine all these doors in front of you. If you, if you want, you know, there are all these different ideas. Everyone's telling you different ideas, like, do this, do that, do this, do that, right? If you want to go through a door that's going to get you the farthest. You have to do more than just believe that there's a God and believe that that God is all-powerful and believe that that God gave us a plan for this world and it's called the Torah. You have to do more than that. You have to do one more thing. You have to understand that that God is good. That a good God is actively running the world and running your life and that if somehow it didn't happen the way you wanted it to happen, right? If the bus went by, right, the amusement park that you wanted to get off and go to, 
you know for sure you're not worried because you know that the driver is taking you to an even better place. Okay. What follows now are some questions and answers. In, in terms of just understanding the, the, the whole process of the brothers getting together, and especially in light of the Ten Martyrs and things like that, where it seems like there was still some unaccounted spiritual energy that needed to be rectified and, and ten martyrs are become the result, you know. Um, I, I'll, ju- I'll just tell you the following. It's not really an, an answer to, to that, but it's, it's related. Um, in the beginning of this portion of, of Vayechi, uh, Yaakov says that I want to tell you about when the end of days is going to come. And he's having a a tremendous level of prophecy and 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 he says gather round right come together and i'm going to tell you when the when the, the end of days is coming and then he loses his prophecy and he doesn't tell them but i heard in the name of the ishbitzer rebbe something very amazing that he did tell them he said gather round meaning if you come together that will be the coming of the end of days in other words, that that in itself is the that in itself is the fixing. When we're actually able to forgive each other, when we're able actually to to function as an organic uh, family, single unit. That's why that's why family relations are like so vital. vital. They're so vital, and and it's it's you know we kind of we kind of don't take them maybe, and I'm speaking to myself right now too. We probably don't take them as seriously as we ought to. But if, if you think about it in the light of Yosef and his brothers and his family and the idea of coming together, these family relations are probably like maybe maybe the main thing that needs to be, you know, worked on, you know? So it's just but something to that think about. point of correlating those fiery angels, which are called Kruvim, and the, the angels on top of the Torah, which are also called Kruvim, and there are two in each instance, is, is a fantastic, fantastic um, connection that you're making. And I think even Reb Tzadik says it as well. Um, kind of on a very simple level, because it's a very big topic, on a very simple level, the idea is, is that um, the Torah is the, the greatest fixing and the greatest antidote. So in other words... The, the Kruvim that were created, the Torah is fixing. And that's why the, those same Kruvim are right there by the Torah. And, and, and that truth endures to this day. Even if there's still, so to speak, that, that blockage, that, 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 that the Torah will be the, the key to ending that blockage. And, and I'll just tell you something, a special kavanah that I have Friday nights. And I share it with you. Um... When we sing Shalom Alechem Friday night by the Shabbos table, the very last verse we say is Tzitzchem L'Shalom, which, which is after we welcome the angels, we're sending the angels away. And in my mind, I always picture the two angels standing guard at the entrance of the Garden of Eden and sending them away. Right? And, and because the truth is, is that Shabbos is we return back to the Garden of Eden, right? It says it's 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 one sixtieth of of the Garden of Eden. So we get, we we get we, we we get back and and 
it's a, it's a good kavanah to have because eventually that blockage won't be there anymore. But that point of correlating those fiery angels, which are called kruvim, and the, the angels on top of the Torah, which are also called kruvim, and there are two in each instance, is a fantastic, fantastic um, connection that you're making. And I think even Reb Tzadik says it as well. Um, kind of on a very simple level, because it's a very big topic, on a very simple level, the idea is, is that um, the Torah is the, the greatest fixing and the greatest antidote. So in other words, the, the Kruvim that were created, the Torah is fixing. And that's why the, those same Kruvim are right there by the Torah. And, and, and that truth endures to this day. Even if there's still, so to speak, that, that blockage, that, 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 that the Torah will be the, the key to ending that blockage. And, and I'll just tell you something, a special kavanah that I have Friday nights. And I share it with you. Um, when we sing Shalom Alechem Friday night by the Shabbos table, the very last verse we say is, Tzitzchem L'Shalom. Which, which is, after we welcome the angels, we're sending the angels away. And in my mind, I always picture the two angels standing guard at the entrance of the Garden of Eden and sending them away, right? And, and because the truth is, is that Shabbos is, we return back to the Garden of Eden, right? It says it's, it's, it's 1 60th of, of the Garden of Eden, so... We get, we, we, get, we, we, we get back, and, and it's, a, it's a good kavanah to have, because eventually that blockage won't be there anymore. Um, you touched on something really interesting, which is like how we have all this information now, and the more of it we have, the less we can rely on it, and now we're, we have to have faith, and we almost like faith is becoming as much of a commodity now as when we had no information, like back when you know, all this stuff was written. So I just think that that's interesting, especially in the context of your um, metaphor about the bus driver. And, but then what you said last week was kind of the opposite of that, which is that like you can't have too much faith. You still have to have your own drive in life to do things. So I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate a little bit on some of the ways that you can distinguish between those two things. Yeah, so... so that's a, that's a great question, and and you know this is we get back to that that big word in Torah, which is the, the word dialectic, where essentially both sides are true, and you have to be able to to handle two opposites, and that's really that's really why this is such a why Torah is really such a sophisticated path, because it demands that you balance opposites. On a, on a regular basis. You know, on the one hand, you, you have to be good with the result, even if it's not the result that you wanted, because you know God is good. But on the other hand, you can't be good with the result that you don't want unless you've tried your hardest to make it into the result that you want. So in other words, um, acceptance must also include a step beforehand, which is intense effort. And, and that's, that's, that's where a lot of people go wrong. 
And the way I, I like to say it sometimes is that you say, God, I believe in you so much. I know you're running the world. I'm handing you the ball. And God says, ah, I am so glad that you believe in me so much. Now I'm handing you back the ball. <laughs> and you go, wait a second, what? <laughs> and then you go, no, 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 God. You, you are the one. And you hand God back the ball. And he goes, yes, yes, yes. And you're the one to do it. And he hands you back the ball. <laughs> and that's kind of life. That's kind of life. Because, you know, as I often say, this lifetime is a work session. It is a work session. There's a lot of beauty, but it's a work session. And unless you know that, you're in la-la land. The chuba that the brothers did and the forgiveness that the brothers did in Mikhei Tzvayigash was from Yira. And here, the chuba from Yira opens itself up to it being questioned again in Vayichi. Just all it took was the death of Yaakov. Now the, they're, they have a little smallness of, of mind from their father's death. And they, they lost the big picture. And that Chuva from here, they had to question it again. And then now, now, they're, now Yosef has another forgiveness. Of The brothers were saying, no, Yosef, you didn't just forgive us. You've been hustling us this whole time just to play Yaakov. Now that Yaakov's gone, you're going to kill us again. And he forgave them for that. When the brothers saw that, then they had a, a, maybe an acceptance of an Ahava type of, of acceptance, and then they can go on further. <laughs> and this is Yosef, again, from what we explained last week, the most powerful. He could have killed them, or th- throw them out, let alone forgive them and keep them on back after that. They question all that forgiveness, and that's, that's also the struggle that we described last week of, of Yehuda and the brothers, that, that their entire struggle is exemplified. I, I was bursting to, to mention the Vayichi questioning of the, of the forgiveness from last week's. Because that's the, that's the struggle between uh, uh, we don't believe that we're forgiven. Mm-hmm. But, but, but when we can, when we can, when we can, and again, the answer is loving and remembering Hashem is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, the famous thing that I, I, I always mention, just because this is like one of those, you can't live without this teaching. From the from the Ger Rebbe, from the Chidush Rim. we have a question after Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, we're forgiven, right? And then you go right into like one of the most amazing things is, especially at the Happy Minion, where we're in shul all day. Like we make a we make a we advertise that you're in, the, the davening is all day. It starts at eight a.m. and it goes to seven p.m. Right? So um, and then after that, you have Mariv. Which is like crazy because you're going into now the prayer service of the next day, which you, you, it's like it's almost it's almost like you can't even wrap your mind around it. You mean there's another prayer service? Like and we just finished with Yom Kippur, but anyway, in that Mariv, you have the regular Shmona Esrei, which includes the word Slachlanu, which is the time where traditionally you sort of like <coughs> clop your chest, you kind of kind of you know you know give your 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 chest a little kind of pounding with a with your fist, like just a little bit, you know, and uh, and you and you say the words of forgive us. And the question is, we just had Yom Kippur. What are you saying? What did you do in the three seconds between the time that they finished Aleinu <laughs> and they said Vahurachum? You know, like what did you do that you have to say forgive us? Uh, 
Okay, so maybe there's no clot, but you're still saying, but still you're saying slachlanu is the point. The, the point is you're still saying slachlanu, forgive us. So the, the question is, exactly, exactly. So that's, that's, that's the answer. So the Chidush Yerim says, you're, 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 you, there is something that, that, you, that you did wrong. <coughs> what did I do wrong? You didn't believe you were forgiven. It's a giant thing, right? It's a giant. It's a giant, you know? Like, can you imagine if, like, like you, 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 sit, you, you, you sit down and someone is in a, the, 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 the kitchen making you, like, this whole meal, right? And then you sit down and it's like you're excited because they told you we're making, making this meal and everything like that. And then... It's sort of like, let's say it's pancakes, right? And you sit down, and it's like, wow, these pancakes are going to be so special. And then they just pour the batter on your plate. And you're like, well, what do I do with this, right? The uncooked batter. Yeah, the uncooked batter. Uncooked yeah, batter. and so, and they say, oh, oh, yeah, I, 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 didn't, I didn't put it on the griddle. I didn't, uh, I didn't finish it. It's like, like, you know, we, like, marinate, like, I'm sure, like, most of you, like, when you marinate, like, a lot of times you marinate in those Ziploc bags, those big Ziploc bags, right? So can you imagine you sit down to dinner and someone, like, reaches into one of those Ziploc bags, <laughs> takes out a raw piece of chicken, dripping chicken, and puts it on your plate? Like, here, here what? It, because there's another step. You gotta cook the thing, right? It's like with forgiveness. There's another step. Like God's giving you forgiveness, you have to receive the forgiveness. <laughs> or you you wanna give someone else forgiveness. Well, you have to actually then give them the forgiveness. Because otherwise it's sort of like you're 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 putting like this like dripping raw piece of chicken on their plate or like, you know dripping some pancake batter on their plate. Like, it, it, it... See, the thing is, is that emotions are so complicated. Right? It's like the New Jersey Turnpike. There are a thousand exits. <laughs> it's like a, a turnpike made out of exits. Every ten feet, there's an exit. So we never, like, we, we, we get confused. When am I done? When was the process over? And you don't want to leave before the process is over. Right? So you have to finish internalizing or you have to allow the other person to internalize. Because until then, you're not done. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.